Hello listeners, I'm Debbie C with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Melissa Roach, has a conversation with Leanne Prane, writer of the book, The Creative Instigator's Handbook, a DIY guide to making social change through art. Together, they have an engaging conversation about the connection between arts and crafts and social activism, the importance of peer mentorship, and the many unique projects that Leanne has been a part of. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Leanne Brain. I'm so happy that you can join us on Below the Radar. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm very excited today to talk about your recently released book, which is The Creative Instigator's Handbook, a DIY guide to making social change through art. Welcome, Leanne. The first question I wanted to ask you was about what was your spark of inspiration for creating this book? And in particular, what made you want to write a DIY guide? So the Creative Instigators Handbook was actually inspired writing my first three books, which were somewhat craft DIY books. And through the course of writing those books, I ended up doing a whole bunch of public lectures and community art projects. And I were constantly meeting people who would kind of come up and shyly show me something out of their bag and be like, you know, I've made this thing, this I've knitted this political statement, but I can't show it to anyone or my husband thinks it's dumb. And so part of the thinking about the book was taking all the skills I'd learned working at Woodward's because I worked there for several years, uh, working in community arts councils that I did as a teenager. I did a lot of um, community art projects in North Vancouver and on Vancouver Island where I grew up and leading people through sort of the basic stages I know that it takes to execute an art project or a community art project to be more precise. So some of that's thinking about, you know, What do I want to accomplish in the world? What skills do I have? You know, how do I meet people to work with? Because often people feel very alone. Um, How do I build confidence in my skills to get them out there? How do I find those resources that might seem, you know, expensive or hard to find? And then, you know, what kind of research might I need to do? How do I promote it and get people actually to participate? And then, you know, how do I look at the project after the pact and figure out what did I learn from it? Or how do I archive it and share it? you know, in the future, or, you know, build something that people can look back on and maybe build their own art project from. Yeah, that's what I really appreciated about it going through is that it truly is a practical guide from end to end for a project. And I'm actually going to go and reread it and actually answer all of the questions and prompts that you put in there for my next project, because it's so many things that evoke reflections that just make your work better. That was the hope. I mean, the hope was that, you know, you don't need to read the book from beginning to end. You can kind of launch yourself into any way. And I think what I really just tried to capture is like, what is that, you know, kind of conversation I have with friends I collaborate with when we get in a room and we have a coffee and we chat. And part of it was also thinking like, you know, I've worked with some pretty incredible internationally renowned artists. I've interviewed some for the book and for my other books. And sometimes you can see that work and it feels so far from maybe, you know, small things you're making in your everyday life. And you'll be like, oh, I didn't get to art school. I didn't, you know, get a chance to like go and study, you know, how to make conceptual art, but I want to make something. And so it's really important for me in my books to be like, well, what, you know, knowledge can I glean from my various bits of experience and what I can learn from other people and how can you make it really practical? So, I mean, we always learn by doing. 
but you kind of have to take that first step. And so, you know, that's what I was hoping. It was a book of micro steps to get people started. Yeah, that's wonderful. You've done so many different things in the arts. Like you're saying, you worked at Community Arts Council. You've been an arts communicator. But in the book, you draw on your experience as a yarn bomber. And I was wondering what made you take that leap and really became interested in the practice of craftivism and art that has a socially engaged aspect to it? Um, Yeah, I mean, where did it really start for me? I mean, I've always made things by hand. Like I grew up in a very crafty household. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I grew up in a small town pre-internet era where really (laughs) if you wanted cool clothes, you had to make them yourself because we had literally one store in town. (laughs) It was sand, which was, you know, not around anymore. But I think, you know, a very Canadian small town kind of thing. I also grew up like one of my dad's friends is a fairly well-known artist named Godfrey Stevens. And he's a carver that's quite well-known on the West Coast in One of his most well-known works is The Weeping Woman of Clackwat Sound, which was sort of like a key art piece that was used during the Clackwat Forest protests in the 80s. And so um, I actually grew up with like Godfrey's doodles on the walls of my parents' house. Um, And so I think, you know, art and protest have always been inherently linked. Like I have this childhood memory of somebody gifting me a little wooden button. It was a handmade button for free Nicaragua. And I remember I had that like in my childhood things. So... You know, I think craft and art and protest have always been together. And then, you know, I was very involved in the arts when I was in high school and I had a great art teacher that, you know, made us do community projects. And then I started working in community art programming for seven years every summer when I was a university student. I did that. And then I worked at the Belkin Art Gallery for a couple of years. And I was at UBC. I was an undergrad in the art history program in the 90s and it was when the APEC 97 protests were going on and at the time I was a work-study student at the gallery and Scott Watson who was the curator said we need to go get some of the protest posters to include in the university art archive so that was my reality as like a student who was working but then every summer I was going home and like I'm making things with people in my local community right so lantern festivals and like you know, artists painting cars with kids and like very practical hands-on. Anyone from the community can make things. And then at the same time, I was in this really incredible art history program at UBC that was very well respected at the time. You know, I'd gone there thinking, oh, I'm going to be an art curator. And at the time, the big controversy was that, you know, there had been an art essay written by someone who'd been an art history student who was an Indigenous woman who had kind of said, I'm reading about all this canonized you know, European art history, and it doesn't make sense in my world. And the way that essay was introduced to us was it was this really controversial thing. And, you know, maybe because I'm from Vancouver Island, I was like, really? This is controversial? (laughs) And it didn't make sense with, like, you know, the work I was doing in my summers or the things I was seeing at the art gallery, and they were all, like, so completely divorced for me. Mm -hmm. And I think even, you know, with the opportunity to write a book on something like yarn bombing, And seeing like yarn bombers do things that are not just pretty crafty stuff. They're trying to make a statement or people being like yarn can't be art. For me, it's always been like, what is the difference between all these things? These are everybody is making something in the spirit of communicating to each other. So why are we putting up boundaries or saying this is higher? This is lower. This belongs in a gallery. This is conceptual art that will involve people. This is a community project. So Um, I think that's kind of been my own personal, like, mission of troublemaking. It's like, you know, maybe we can bring urine bombing into an art gallery. Many people have since, right, since it's been acceptable. 
Or maybe, you know, someone without our training can actually create incredibly impactful work, which we also know can happen, right? Like, I think a lot about um, Smokey D's graffiti in the Downton East side and how important that has been as a communication method, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, my head's kind of swimming with all those thoughts, but those are things I'm often thinking of as I'm going about either creating work or, you know, thinking about how I approach my books and stories. Yeah, that kind of this juncture that you're talking about between all those art spaces and different types of making and perhaps unnecessary classifications about what kind of art is art. You said it's one of your endeavors to unpack that, but where do you think that all stems from? Uh, I mean, you mentioned, you know, kind of the colonial canon as one. Yeah, I mean, I think um, formalized art, that's a lot of how people get taught that still, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, like. But I also think, you know, there's maybe something inherent just in society of how we treat art, like artists are kind of weird people generally, right? In, you know, society, if you don't run with artists, you know, yeah, you're, you want to say something's other, weird, you say they're arty. Or you're crafty, right? Yeah. So, you know, like even my current role, you know, some of my coworkers have found out I've written a, a crafty book. And they're like, oh, well, someone's in my life is crafty, right? So <laughs> it's like, and, and, you know, even when I was doing a lot of press for your momming, you'd meet people who are like newscasters. And they're like, yeah, I've knit since I was a child, you know, 40, 50 year old man. And it's like, but I've never told anybody. And it's like, well, why not? <laughs> You know what I mean? Um, So, you know, I think there's just a certain cultural attitude about it. I think we're starting to break down, hopefully, some of our attitude towards that. Like, there's an artist, Jenny Hart, who said, like, during the 80s, craft was very uncool. And knowing how to make things is very uncool. And maybe because I was raised by parents who have very, like, grassroots, like, you know, children of, like, the 60s era. Like, what's uncool about knowing how to build your own house, sew your own clothes, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, embroider a statement that you could bring out to the community and engage people and, you know, change somebody's mind through politics, right? I don't know. Well, it's, I mean, also, like, the classist lens of, well, you couldn't afford to pay someone to do it for you, Mm -hmm. I think. There's that, too. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about... Yeah, so speaking to, you know, the the man who's been knitting his whole life and doesn't speak about it or maybe doesn't call himself a maker or an artist, what are your reflections about, especially having written this DIY guide for people who are breaking into the arts or maybe looking to take their art further? What are your thoughts around hesitancies of getting into it or about self-identifying as, oh, I am an artist or yes, I am a maker, I'm a crafter? I have a craft. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of that, it's um, learning to listen to your inner self versus others. I mean, even as someone like I have worked in like commercial design space and that can be a lovely, wonderful community, but it can also be a very competitive space where people are very quick to tell you whether you're a good designer or a bad designer or you've gone to the right school or everybody has an opinion generally, right? And I think the same thing goes for art and creativity. Like there's always somebody who will be a critic. (laughs) And at a certain point, um, you have to, you know, really figure out what makes you happy and what skills you have that you want to use in the world, whether that's, you know, practicing for yourself privately or, you know, starting to introduce your work to a small circle of friends. You can start to build confidence. You know, I spent a lot of time in the book thinking about collaboration and like, how do you find those people that you work with well? And I think that's part of how, you know, art gets seen is when we show it to other people. Maybe it doesn't need a wide audience, but even when you share it with one other person, 
it almost becomes art, right? Versus mm. just something you're doing, if that makes sense. So, mm. yeah, I'm thinking going back to you're saying that taking that extra step of like infusing your politics and your activism into your art, or you know, vice versa. I'm thinking back to the the lending library of protest banners that was one of the case studies yeah. in the book because you were talking about you know archiving posters and how that library is meant to be like they're living things that get used all the time. Are there other case studies? I know I didn't ask you to prepare like um, if there are things that still stick in your mind and conversations you had in the book and projects that you maybe that come to mind more so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's 23 case studies in the book. And, you know, it became apparent to me as I was writing it, like I wanted to have different artists work and, you know, inspire people reading the book, but also sort of get an idea of like, you know, depending on where you come from, like if you're somebody who's been practicing art for 10 years and suddenly you're like, hmm, I want to do something a little bit political, that hopefully there was somebody who, you know, you could see where you're like, oh, they're inspiring, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you've never tried anything before, something, you know, small and accessible. The Protest Lending Library is an amazing project by an artist named Aram Han Sufetis. You know, she's very interested in democracy. So she is a child of Korean immigrants in the U.S., grew up in a very tight-knit community of people. Uh, her mother is a seamstress and her parents owned a tailor shop. They still do. Um, so she learned how to sew there. And one of the things that she started to learn was that, um, you know, there are all these people in the U.S. who want to be part of the democratic process, but they don't have the citizenship or the papers to do so. Mm. So one of her projects actually is to create the voting experience for people who are unable to vote. So she right. makes these official unofficial voting booths where you can go in, you can sign a ballot, you can get a wristband. She also created that um, as an online experience during COVID so people can feel like they have their say. And then another um, piece that she started was getting community circles and teaching people how to sew. Because again, these are skills that, you know, not everybody in society has and probably even less people today than maybe 40 years ago. So how do you construct a really easy banner? You know, you get a group of people working together and, you know, that is about sewing circles is when people work together, they talk, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this instant connection that you might not have for any other reason. But one of the things she really said, two things she said stuck with me. One, when she was creating a lot of the banners, she was at a point in her life where she was pregnant and she didn't feel like she could go out to public and protest. And I don't believe she had a citizenship where she could go yeah. and protest. But she could create a banner somebody else could check out and take her voice into public. And that was the reality for many of the people creating the banners, is they weren't able to physically go and protest, but they could create this piece where somebody else could take it out. The other thing that came up is, you know, differing opinions and differing politics. And there were people who showed up to make banners that had completely different politics than her. But she said, you know, what's important in this project is democracy and talking to each other and getting the word out. So for her, it was really the act of making the banner and making it available. Mm -hmm. And that's something for her. She doesn't want that project archived. She, you know, even though there's voices every time she goes to a library or an institution, the idea is it becomes something that can be continually checked out, uh, which I thought was amazing. You know, there's an artist, um, you know, I just contacted him because I was in New York City about five, six years ago and literally pulled an inspirational quote off a poster on the street <laughs> and thought, oh, that's cute and kept it on my fridge for years. Um, but it's a project called Be Mighty, and it's Terrence Kellerman. And Terrence just decided he wanted to add something to New York City streetscapes, and he takes quotes of famous people that inspire him, 
and he puts them up on uh, street poles. Really simple. Anyone could execute that. But it's something, you know, he's sort of um, been doing for, I think, five or six years. And, you know, he was saying that, um, you know, he met a woman one day on the street, you know, because he was doing it rather anonymously. And um, I guess she was at a really low point in her life where she was, you know, considering uh, not continuing. And she found the right quote at the right time. And he said that was enough for him to keep going and keep doing this project. And that project's also been something that's really supported him and his own mental health when he's felt low. So, you know, really simple project, but thought that was a really interesting way of, you know, somebody engaging the public who might choose not to normally and still being able to impact people as well. That was another memorable one for me, Be Mighty. And I, I really liked the ephemeral uh, nature of it because Terrence didn't necessarily know how long they would stay posted, who would take them, take those quotes away, what impact they would have. It was really like a, I think it shows like a lot of trust and, and faith in putting your art and your, I mean, your ideas out into the world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, he has his favorite quote, which is a Theodore Roosevelt quote, which is do what you can with what you have when you can. I'm paraphrasing, but mm. um yeah, I just think that's a lovely sentiment. And I think that says a lot for, you know, people who do community projects as well. And, you know, I think that was something else that kind of inspired me. Like I was thinking about, you know, I studied art history. I worked in community arts councils, but I didn't really honestly know a lot about um, art activations until I worked at Woodward's when I was in like my mm -hmm. mid-30s. Like it wasn't part of my art education. And, you know, I think the School for Contemporary Arts teaches like really fascinating stuff to their students, but that's not necessarily content that's accessible to the general public, right? And so a lot of what I was internally exploring when I was writing the book is like, what is the difference between an art activation really, you know, done with someone who's really practiced in fine arts versus a community art project that anyone can start? And maybe like, what skills can I pull from one practice and put to the other too? Mm -hmm. And uh, the um, do what you can with what you have, that that sentiment makes me think of um, some of the projects, particularly I'm thinking about the trolls. Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah, the trolls. The, <laughs> the projects that are made entirely out of recycled materials, because another barrier that you write about is that people often say, well, I don't have the resources to start. I don't have, I don't have supplies. Like, I, don't, I don't have space to do what I want to do. And it's really just taking stock of what you have and... and doing what you can <laughs> exactly yeah. so you're referring to the project of thomas dumbo who's a artist from copenhagen and he's um he travels all over the world right now like mm -hmm. he actually has a team of people who help him now but he started making birdhouses so he would help community folks uh, figure out how to make a simple birdhouse and they would make hundreds of birdhouses for a single tree so he does a lot of projects with multiples but they're all made out of waste materials but now he's got into building these incredible like 20 foot trolls like they're they take over their troll size they take over the whole landscape but they're always made with materials sourced from the immediate area and he'll often work with organizations who are like well we should bring all this wood in for this festival and he's like no we're gonna go source it in a day and then build it <laughs> and he builds these really fantastical creatures but the other thing i really liked about him is he's he started and you know don't think about somebody danish being a rap artist but he started as a rap artist when he was <laughs> younger and he makes up stories about these creatures that they create but it all has like an ecological message and 
you know, thought he was a really fascinating person in terms of using different artistic skills and blending them together to sort of create projects and then bring other people into that work. And he's now just written a children's book about the trolls to empower kids about the environment, too. That's so, so fun. Yeah. Yeah, they look like straight out of a fairy tale. They, they, they do. They're really, really magical. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And I was thinking just to give people a, a, like another flavor, because there's such a breadth of different types of work. The other one, I, I think you write that it brings delight every time you think of it. But uh, and of course, I'm making you do the work of come up with all the artists' names and the project oh, names. Okay. <laughs> but, um, the wonderful pedicabs outfitted with beautiful sculptures. The animals. Oh, yes. Like, so yeah. that that was actually a dream project to be able to contact the people who made that. So the spirit of the animals is in the wheels. In the wheels. <laughs> um, and so Dave Eggers, who's a very well-known writer, who's quite famous for not only writing some award-winning novels and publishing McSweeney's magazines, but also running a whole chain of um, children's tutoring societies across the U.S., and they all have different themes, like the most well-known one is in San Francisco and it has a pirate theme. So the kids have tutoring in the back, but you can go to this pirate store and buy glass eyeballs and <laughs> all sorts of things and making literary tutoring really fun. And I've been to that store a few times. But he partnered with a bike maker in Detroit and um, one of their tutoring programs in Detroit, they were having a hard time getting the kids to get there after school. And they wanted to figure out a sustainable mode of transportation. So Juan Martinez is the bike maker and he'd been known for making like crazy art bikes. And so Dave Eggers like literally came to Juan with a sketch and said, can you make this bison bike? And they're made out of aluminum and they are beautiful. So there's a bear, a bison, a pangolian. And like it looks like from the photos, five to six children can sit on them. And they're the most magical looking things. And, you know, they can weave them through the streets of Detroit and they've kind of become this pride symbol. But it also takes the kids to tutoring. Like, yeah. what a magical way to go, you know, from after school to more school, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I loved that one. Yeah, you are mentioning working at uh, at SFU, being in the Woodbridge Complex. And because that's that's how we met each other. That's right. Is that, yeah. Um, yeah. Leanne actually trained me and did a lot of mentoring in arts communication for me personally. And I was going through this book and reading all like the thoughtful prompts and feeling like this book is like a mentor sitting on your shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's really beautiful. And I wanted to ask you about what role mentorship has played in your creative life. Yeah, I mean, I think... I've had a bunch of mentors. Like, I don't think there's anyone where I would point to a certain person and say, like, they are my mentor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think I've been really fortunate to have a whole bunch of people in my life who have always encouraged me very, you know, creatively. One being my parents. And my dad was a builder. He built, like, very unconventional wooden boats when I was a kid. So I think I've always seen what's possible if you focus on something and you make something, you know? I worked for an incredible woman who ran the North Vancouver Community Arts Council for many years. She recently retired. Her name was Linda File, and I actually have a small nod to her in the book. And one of the things she would say, she had all these, you know, catchphrases she'd throw out. (laughs) But I remember being like 21, living in Vancouver on my own, really long term, beyond just student dormitories. And she would, you know, tell us to go do something and say, fill your boots and like leave the room. <laughs> My other favorite one was D&D, delegate and disappear. <laughs> but, you know, it's just giving people a license to like go yeah. ahead and create something, start an art show, contact an artist, make something. So in some ways, like she was the most incredible person to work for because she literally would say, here are the tools. I'm going to leave you. 
go ahead, come find me when you need me, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so many people, I have to say that I have a very close circle of friends who are all involved in the arts in various ways. Many of them come to my house uh, every couple of weeks. We have sort of a little, we call it the Clarence because I live in a building called the Clarence. <laughs> and um, uh, we kind of talk and brainstorm where we are with different projects that we're working on. One of my dearest friends, her name's Laura Farina. She's a poet. She actually works for SFU now. She runs the Writer's Studio. She and I met by chance. I met a friend of hers on the bus who said, I have a friend who's a poet who's moving to Vancouver. He's looking for a writer's group you two should meet. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to meet this random stranger from Toronto or <laughs> Ottawa. Um, but she's been one of my you know, greatest friends and collaborators and person I can call to bounce ideas off of. And we've started a literary art project that we call The Imprint, where we do public events every once in a while. So, That's um, fun. I want to know more about that. Yeah. We can do that later, too. Yeah, I, I mean, we do things like we've served a literary lemonade at 101 Days. So we've gone down to oh, Kit's cool. Beach, literally dragged her dining room table out and served Strangers Lemonade, ask them about their day, compose some writing on the side of a paper cup about their day, you know, have these amazing stranger stories, filled it with lemonade, wish them goodbye, had a great day. We did a project at Maker Fair Vancouver when it was around called Dream Tent, where we asked people about their dreams and we wrote it on a tablecloth. And the hope is one day that cloth will become a tent. We did a project at Word on the Street a few years ago where we asked people to write a fortune for somebody else. And then we put it in a fortune machine, big glass head in a box, and they would pull out a fortune that another citizen of Vancouver had written for them. We've done a paper dinner party for International Women's Day and asked people to come to the paper dinner party and write stories of women on paper plates and napkins. So to literally invite other women to the table, kind of a takeoff on yeah. TV Chicago. So yeah, yeah I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with mentorship is there's that whole idea of a mentor being someone you go to and talk to, but I think you can cultivate that in a bunch of people around you. And sometimes it's just looking for who encourages you and who inspires you. So I've got a little bit in the book about that too. You know, look for where you get positive reinforcement, encouragement, or those people that ask you really challenging questions, because those are the people who are probably steering you in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've found that peer mentorship can be just some of the most fruitful too. And um, like you said, bringing your, your kind of circle of people around you. And you write about it in the book about just the wonderful magic of having kind of that community of practice that keeps you going and like you said pushes you when you need it <laughs> exactly <laughs> and also people who do completely different things like one of my dearest friends who's also actually a mentor I mean we're 20 years apart and we became friends I think when I was 18 so we're like we literally you know turn double decades together when we have birthdays but, you know, she's a writer, but she's really a theater artist and a dancer and a jewelry maker, which I am not. But she's, again, someone I can bounce ideas off of and talk to. So, um, you know, that's one of the great things about life is finding people who are creative, who maybe are creative in a very different way than you are. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think we're coming to my last question. You did not intend to write this book during the pandemic. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that is what ended up having to happen. How was that experience for you? And what do you what do you think would be different about the book if it was written at a different time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question. It's um, the thing I have learned about writing books is every time, because this is my fourth book, every time I write a book, I go into the project thinking the book baby is going to be this. I have an idea. This is the pitch I've put together for my publisher. And then at the end, you get a very different baby 
And you're like, this is not the baby I thought it was. <laughs> but I think I like this baby. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, I yeah, I um, I was working a very busy job that got busier as a result of the pandemic in communications. And even though my focus is not crisis communications, I ended up doing that during the pandemic. So, you know, my writing time was leaner than I would have liked it to be. You know, typically not in a pandemic, I would be able to you know, meet local artists, go to them, have in-person conversations. So, I mean, it took an extra six months to write the book as well, because, you know, I had this perfect laundry list of every artist I wanted to contact, but through the course of the pandemic, like everybody was in crisis. Yeah. And so, you know, people might not be as emotionally or mentally available as they normally are. They might have big stuff happening. You know, I had people agree to be in it who drifted, you know, um, you know, and you can't fault anybody for that. That was just the state of everybody's reality. But on the other hand, like it also gave me an opportunity to really reach out and have, you know, I think deeper conversations with people to get artists, you know, some of the ones with, you know, long-term practices thinking about where they were in that moment in time where they were thinking about their art practice in a very particular way, it got, you know, altered by the pandemic. And it's like, I'm used to working face to face with people. How can I do this now? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was also a lot of things. I mean, every book, there's so many people I'd want to include. Like I do consider this like a tasting menu of people out there. It's again, not the end all be all of, you know, who should be in the book. You know, I always have, you know, 20 other people I wish I could have yeah. included as well. Right. Yeah. You did write about how in this time of crisis, not just for people who make art, but art was a bomb in general mm -hmm. for people to turn to. Exactly. Well, and I think people became more comfortable with showing off their weirdness, if that makes sense, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I wasn't really aware of TikTok till the pandemic happened, right? And then that sort of became the happy social media while everything else seemed to be falling apart. But, you know, people willing to kind of show their weird selves. I saw Facebook groups where... There was one called um, Get Down with the Lockdown. I'd really hope to include the starters of that in the book, but they were too busy with their group that was thriving, I think. Too right? busy getting down. Too busy getting down. But it, <laughs> like, it was really amazing to see those organic communities form. I guess that's the other thing that I was going to mention is like I had a writer's group that would come to my house every two weeks and suddenly like we were meeting on Zoom and, mm. and we continued to meet for quite a long time. But then, you know, people have young kids, people have other things going on. But I also started an online writer's group with somebody I've never met in person. We still haven't met. We've been meeting for like two and a half years. <laughs> and um, we were going to something through meetup.com. And then I was like, hmm, we both work day jobs. We're both trying to find the right time. Do you want to meet on Tuesday nights? And then he and I ended up co-hosting this Tuesday night writer's group that's still going. We have random strangers come in from like Seattle, California, people in Vancouver. Aside from one person I know personally from working at SFU, like, Literally, I've never met any of them in life, in real life, but I've seen them every two weeks for like two years. That's wild. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's really neat. Yeah. That's one thing that we found at SVU, at SVU's Fantasy Office of Community Engagement with um, really, you know, being more and more prolific with Below the Radar is that we previously were doing a lot of engagement in person. That was no longer possible. And one thing that came out of it is that we were beginning to speak to people in faraway places that otherwise we would have, you know, had to come up with money to fly them out for an event. And all of a sudden we, um, I mean, the access was always there <laughs> digitally is the funny thing, but it, it just became so important and necessary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of this is also about connection and like 
maybe that's done in person, maybe that's done online, you know, and even in like writing Yarn Bombing, like we republished that book 10 years later and like going back to republish that book, I'm like, oh, wow, we've got my space in this book. We've got all these because at that time I was so excited about how something that was a traditionally domestic medium that would normally be done in living rooms suddenly had all this proliferation online. And like Mm -hmm. at that point in time, there was Ravelry.com, which was bigger than Facebook. Like it was this intense online community of knitters, right? And that was so exciting, but now that's almost normalized, right? Like we can actually share all of these things all the time, anytime. And I think that actually creates some amazing opportunities, right? Even though there's so many challenging things happening in the world, like we're able to connect with each other in so many different ways. Yarn mm-hmm. Bombing is a great book. I also love that it is full of practical patterns and how to uh, really quickly wrap a tree in a sweater <laughs> and dash off into the night. <laughs> That'd be very sneaky when people used to feel like they had to wear costumes to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I actually walked past a tree sweater on my way to the oh, optometrist yeah. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> There's some pretty active yarn bombers in Mount Pleasant and I live very close to there and I'm always getting emails like, is this you? And I'm like, no, there are other people who do this. They're out there. <laughs> They're out there. <laughs> so cool. I guess my last question is, um, how do people find the book? Maybe at their local independent bookstore? That is yeah. right. Yes. So it's published by Arsenal Pulp Press, a Vancouver publisher with global distribution. So um, it's available in the US, Canada, UK. We encourage you to get it from either Arsenal Pulp directly, or you can get it from your independent bookstore or those other places that take a bigger cut <laughs> than everybody <laughs> who makes the book. <laughs> so. Thank you so much, Leah. Thanks for having me. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Leanne Preen. Head to the show notes to learn more about the resources mentioned in the show. We release episodes every Tuesday, so make sure to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcasting app of choice to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.